Welcome to Growth Mindset University. My name is Jordan Paris, 21-year-old author and host of this show. And with this show, you and I will embark on a journey to learn the things that we should have learned in school but did not, so that we may take control of our lives while fulfilling our vision of success. Each episode will feature a brand new lesson, and now it's time for today's lesson. So put your thinking cap on, because school is now in session. All right, my guest today is Dr. Noel Cassiano. Dr. Cassiano obtained his bachelor's degree in sociology and a master's degree in marriage and family therapy from Central Connecticut State University. He is a licensed marriage and family therapist with the state of Connecticut. Dr. Cassiano obtained a doctorate degree in clinical psychology from California Southern University, and he is a clinical fellow and approved supervisor and the chair of the National Trauma Interest Network with the American Association of Marriage and Family Therapy. He is an adjunct professor in the marriage and family therapy program at Central Connecticut State University. Dr. Cassiano is also in private practice through Cassiano Clinical Services in Hartford and Hamden, Connecticut, where he works with individuals and families to find healing and solutions for their concerns. Dr. Cassiano has certification in the neuroscience of attachment, quite interesting, attachment and trauma. He is the author of The Fatherhood Crisis, which is available on Amazon and Kindle. Dr. Cassiano will also be soon releasing his second book, Just a Kid from Park Street, which provides an informative firsthand glimpse into the personal challenges following experiences of trauma and loss, shining a spotlight on the psychological, neurological, emotional, and sociological after effects, only now coming to light in scientific and medical research. Also, Dr. Cassiano was a featured TEDx speaker, and his talk, What Happened to You, is available on YouTube, which will be linked in the show notes for this episode, jordanparis.com slash podcast. Just search Noel Cassiano in the search in the top right. Dr. Cassiano, welcome to Growth Mindset University. It's a pleasure to have you. Oh, thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's an honor for me to be here with you. Awesome, man. Yeah, you. one of the things that you talk about is the neurobiology of attachment. Let's unpack this topic a little bit. What is neurobiology first? So uh, neurobiology is a very interesting way of looking at individual functioning, right? So understanding that we are made up of many different components. So we are psychological beings, emotional beings, uh, but we also have, based on our early experiences and, and, and even experiences in utero, right, and that inner uterine experiences, are, begin the process of building um, our experiences that we're going to have um, in life. So neurobiology just really takes a, a deeper look into some of those um, early experiences that we have in interuterine experiences, 
Then after the process of, you know, a baby being born, depending on the attachment and relationships that those, uh, that child has with their parents or their caregivers. And then it, it just kind of, it builds on that, you know, so looking at attachment, looking at experiences and relationships with, with family and with peers. And then this whole um, um, aspect of looking at moral development and engagement and and having optimal opportunities to, for learning that builds um, that individual's character, personality, and then looking at genetics and looking at the biological functions of human beings, right? So when we look at... Um, a psychological, biological, and then I even include the process of spirituality that um, also makes up a big component of how people either manage their their life um, when they're having um, difficulties and how they can really use spirituality to be able to cope and manage with those difficult um, experiences in life. So again, so neurobiology looks at every kind of function of um, genetics, um, personality, um, looking at um, uh, psychological um, uh, ex uh, experiences. So it's really kind of that holistic look of every component of human life. What implications does this have uh, going into our adult years or on just on human beings in general, the neurobiology of attachment? Yeah, so the, the neurobiology attachment is so vital, right? I always say um, attachment is um, the most important um, component of human life. Depending on uh, if you had, you know, secure or, uh, or positive attachment, we'll, uh, we'll have indicators later on in life of how healthy an adult you're going to be. So if you don't have those optimal, secure attachments early on in life, and I even go as far as, again, those in uterine experiences. And some people, when I talk about that, they look at me like, what? I was like, yes, even in the process of that baby um, not being born yet, there are components of attachments that are being um, um, built. And, and a child, when a baby is born, their temperament is already present. So there are, there, there are um, different types of temperament that a baby will have that then will begin to dictate, depending on what type of attachments that they build over time, will indicate how healthy that, that individual is going to be as an adult. But why? Why? Well, because everything that went, are, are based on our experiences in life, right? So we have to have close personal um, relationships that help with um, our human connection. So anytime you look at an, an adult and you start to um, investigate why they have certain types of, let's say, psychiatric conditions, some of those are built on genetics, right? And some of those are built on what we do to our brains and our bodies that we use drugs, alcohol, whatsoever, you know, any, any kind of things that what we call toxins that we build into our bodies and not just drugs and alcohol. I even go as far as diet and, and how, what kinds of foods we're eating. Um, so 
when we're looking at individual adults that have, you know, dif- difficulties in, you know, mental health, psychiatric conditions or poor relationships, it all stems back again to this process of attachment. So because of the lack of positive attachments, now individuals will create what we what we call these psychosocial crisis moments, right? So an individual, you take an, an individual child that you don't have uh, positive connections um, with. So if that child doesn't build these positive peer relationships, that child will tend to isolate. And in isolation, human beings begin to develop these maladaptive ways of living life. Oh, gosh, there's so much there. <laughs> Let, let's just... I want to talk about the isolation in a second, but some forms of positive and negative attachment to hammer them in, what are they? Yeah. So there are four types of of attachments, right? So, um, and and it all goes back to the work um, of John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth, right? For those that are familiar, you know, if you ever took any psych 101 classes or anything like that, it's covered in there. So we're looking at secure attachments. So secure attachments are um, built with um, a, a child and their parents. When you know, you know, I have this 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 philosophy that you c- there's you cannot spoil the child, right? Some people say, oh, you know, if you give a child too much attention, or if a child is crying and you're always tending to them, you know, you're going to spoil them. And it's mm-hmm. absolutely the opposite, right? When a child is and when a baby is in distress and is, they're crying, right? They have a specific need that needs to be met. So in secure attachment, when that child is in distress, when that child is crying, you know, it could be, yeah, they might need their, their diaper change or, or they might to need to be fed, but sometimes they just need to be held, right? So in secure attachment, that's what's happening, right? They're their um, physical distress, their psychological, and you're like, well, a baby, yes, their psychological distress and their emotional distress is being met and is being soothed, right? So that is what we are looking for in secure attachment. So there's no such thing as spoiling a child. If a child is in distress, you need to uh, figure out how to soothe that child. That's secure attachment. That's the best attachment um, that you can possibly give a child. Then the other three are anxious avoidant attachments and anxious avoidant attachments are, you know, when parents, because of, you know, maybe they have their own um, needs or their own psychological, emotional uh, things going on, they tend to not pay it, you know, pay attention to their child or meet their child's uh, needs when, when, when needed. Um, So that child begins to, to to have this philosophy about wow I am not loved I am not you know so they they tend to be anxious avoidant attachments uh, patterns and then the a- anxious resistant attachment is that child that with their parent being present right um, you know in psychology we call it the strange situation so with their 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 um, parent uh, present in a room they still might be resistant to exploring their world, right? And their parent could be right there. Um, so those are those anxious, resistant attachments that uh, patterns that you see. And then disorganized attachment is the worst type of attachment pattern 
um, because again, that's when a child is being neglected, um, being abused, their parental or caregiver uh, that's uh, is not present in their life is kind of inconsistent. And you know, and I and I spent 15 years in um, in child welfare um, and, a, and a child protective agency, uh, the Department of Children and Families in Connecticut. And those children that were removed from their homes multiple times, um, that were placed in foster care, um, those children tend to struggle with disorganized attachment because there's not that consistent um, routine um, um, relationship with their caregiver or their parents. So those pretty much are the four types of quality attachment um, patterns that are the building blocks, Jordan, for the rest of our lives. And depending on what type of attachment pattern we 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 experience, will will then begin to kind of give you a picture of what type of adult this person will be. If you were to paint a picture of of raising the ideal way to raise a child, what would that be? The ideal way, again, starting from the in uterine experience. So ensuring that that mother has a, re- a healthy relationship, hopefully with that father of that child. Um, but if not, right, if they don't have, if the mother, let's say some reason is not in a relationship with the father, hope, you know, making sure that that mother has healthy relational experiences, even while pregnant and making sure that she's taking care of her health, that she's not abusing drugs or alcohol, that, um, you know, that, that again, is, is the very uh, important um, basic kind of uh, building block. Can I, can I ask you a question? My mom had Arby's all the time when I was, uh, uh, it's that, that bad. Cause I think about that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. It's not, you know, obviously it, it has to be a balanced diet, but it doesn't have to be, you know, that, you know, obviously they had, they need a vegan diet or some kind of healthy uh, diet. Um, but just ensuring that again, because whatever she's putting in to her body has direct effect on, on her unborn child. Mm-hmm. Totally. So you are well-versed in the topic of relationships and, you know, we started talking about isolation a little bit earlier. What begins to happen precisely when we begin to isolate ourselves as so, human beings? Yeah. So when we begin to isolate ourselves as human beings, we, we, we now begin to struggle with um, issues, not, not just of loneliness, uh, but then we can start to struggle with issues around a depressed state um, that if not um, addressed can you know, turn into a severe kind of psychiatric condition of major depressive disorder. Um, so in isolation, we struggle with loneliness, sadness, uh, the uh, depressed mood or depression. And then from there, it can even go into maladaptive ways of coping with loneliness, sadness, and depression. And that's when you start to see individuals maybe engage in high-risk behaviors, high-risk taking behaviors, such as abusing drugs or alcohol or, you know, um, uh, uh, unhealthy uh, relationships that they might get into, um, where they're, they, it can lead to issues of controlling uh, because, again, because of their extreme isolation, um, now they're, they don't know how to manage that. So they begin to um, interact with others in an unhealthy way. Well, 
what would you define as isolation? Like how I'm talking in, t- in terms of like how much time you spend uh, alone versus with people, or is this different for everyone? Yeah, it's highly individualized. So uh, I'm not saying that spending time alone in, in in itself, it's not healthy. It is, you know, we, you know, I practice that myself. I, you know, it's really good to have time where you, 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 you know, you're able to be by yourself, be with your thoughts and, and just kind of reflect on many different things on how you're living your life, what kind of things you would like to achieve in the future. Maybe even reflect on things that, that you've already experienced and are those things healthy or unhealthy and what you should do about it. Right. So, you know, it's just having a healthy balance and, and not just kind of isolating, um, and removing yourself from human connection. Because when you do that, that's when we start to see um, really serious problems. Yeah. You, you know, I have something called scheduled me time. Usually yes. it's always around dinner time, but it's really important in yes. in the shaping of who I am and and the work that I do. It's really, really important. Yes. Um, but then, you know, some sometimes too much is can you know it can be uh, can be very detrimental. But why? Why is this isolation so detrimental? Do you know like what happens to us? Well, what happens is, again, we were all kind of built to have relationships with others, right? So when we start to see even many generations before, right, we, you know, humans lived in communities um, and it was healthy to live in large communities because you have constant um, connections with people. Um, and what we're seeing over time, and it's very interesting, I was watching, I'm kind of a 60 Minutes buff. <laughs> and, and a couple of weeks ago, you know, on 60 Minutes, they, they were sharing kind of this 10-year study that the National Institute of Mental Health um, is, is undergoing. And they're looking at the impacts of social media or uh, um, electronic devices on children, on, on their brains. Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, there, we're, there we want to be able to see the impacts of social isolation or social disconnection. And you might say, but I have like 5,000 people following me on Instagram or, you know, I have all these people following me on Facebook. Um, but what we're starting to see is that social media is really not connecting individuals the way that we should is actually the opposite is disconnecting individuals and 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 that that's going to have long lasting negative impacts so we need to study that we need to see uh, what's going to happen and and again just to kind of go back on this 10 year study that um um is being done by the National Institute of Mental Health we are, you know, in the in that 60 minutes piece, you saw examples of, okay, you would give a child a toy, right? And the researcher was there with the child and maybe their parent, and the, the child is playing with their toy. And, and then the researchers w- w- would say, can I have the toy back? And the child would give that toy back. Now you gave that same child an iPad and, they're pl- and you let them play with it. After a couple minutes, you say, can I have the iPad back? And they refuse to give it back. So again, the impact of, you know, electronic or social media, uh, we want to see how that's going to impact 
again, the brains of, of, of children and how that's going to have impact later on, on the way that we have, we build relationships or maintain relationships in a healthy way. Well, I can, I can say, um, you know, maybe this is just, uh, me being the old guy, but I look at like my younger sister who is 14 years old and, you know, she's, she's been on a, on a smart device, uh, you know, with, with, so with like Instagram for the last four years, since like nine, 10 years old, I think about that. And I'm like, gosh, I was only allowed to get a flip phone when I turned 10 (laughs) and I didn't have Instagram till I was, yeah, I was 17. I didn't have Instagram until I was 17. Snapchat. I was, I'm, I think I was 17 as well. Um, and I don't even use Snapchat anymore, like yeah. ever. Um, I, and I think about that, like, okay, if I had that when I was nine, 10 years old, I don't know that I would be as motivated or even know how to form those relationships. But yeah. then, the, then the counter argument to that is like, okay, the older generation always has the, these concerns about the younger generation. <laughs> Ends up being, well, what do you think about that? What do you think the results of this study are going to look like? Well, it's. I think again, it's really preliminary to kind of make these leaps. But you know, again, my hypothesis is that again, when in when children don't establish social peer relationships you know, it's going to have impacts on the way we maintain relationships as adults. Um, So, you know, this whole concept of, you know, recess in elementary school and how that is being taken away more and more and more because we need to invest more time in academics. And again, uh, I strongly believe that children should be academically um, enriched and prepared, but so is important that they have these optimal opportunities to build social relationships that are more enriching, I believe, right? So Jordan, if I was to ask you, as a teacher, what's the most important thing that children should learn in school? I do a lot of trainings in schools because I'm, uh, again, a believer in uh, social connections and building relationships. And when I ask this question to a lot of these teachers and, and principals and school administrators, they say, oh, you know, they should learn math and they should learn English and they should learn, you know, history and social studies. And I'm like, yes, that's great. But how about how to maintain positive relationships, how to be nice to others, how to be empathetic, how to be compassionate, how to you know, have good self-regulation. All those things are equally or even more important than algebra two, you know, as an adult. (laughs) So not to say algebra is not important, but being nice to others is probably more important than algebra two. What do you think? (laughs) Oh, I I totally agree with that. But that's not really something uh, that's being taught in schools. And I think it should be. It's very interesting. Now, what would you say the elements of a positive human connection, a good relationship are in, you know, in, and I'm, you know, we can, we can talk about um, romantic relationships in a second, but I'm just talking about in general. In general. Well, number one, you have to be healthy. 
right, Jordan? Yeah, it starts with you. So if I want to um, build relationships with others, I have to make sure that I have good self-regulation, that I can manage my emotions in a healthy way, right? And some people say, oh, you know, anger is not good. Anger is a normal emotion in life, right? It's a ang- anger is something that it, it, it's it, it's a self-protective in a way, right? Um, if something is being done to you that is not right or is not fair, you're gonna feel anger, and that's and and, and so again, it's it's a healthy emotion. The way we express anger is different, right? So if I'm angry at you, Jordan, because you cursed me out or something, or you did something to me that I didn't like. Disclaimer, I did not, to the audience, I did not do that. (laughs) No, you did not do that. So I'm going to say, Jordan, you know, I didn't appreciate the fact that you disrespected me and you, you used that type of language with me or that you treated me this way. You know, I didn't appreciate that versus, you know, that's a healthy way of expressing anger versus uh, an unhealthy way of uh, expressing that anger by throwing something at you or physically assaulting you. Right. So um, so it it all starts with you in order to build healthy relationships. And it all starts with you and how you manage yourself and how healthy you are. And so then that will allow you to um, have, you know, positive long-term relationships with others. Mm. So you're a marriage and family therapist too. What, what are some of the most common occurrences and problems you see in these marriages? Well, uh, you know, a lot of times uh, as marriage and family therapists, you know, some people will take that leap into, you know, oh, we have communication problems. <laughs> And yeah, that could be a component, but you know, there are different ways that we build relationships, romantic relationships, right? So, you know, one is attraction, right? So obviously you're physically, um, emotionally attracted to others. So when, when you are attracted to someone, um, that's kind of one of the ways you begin the process of building um, a, you know, a relationship, a romantic relationship with someone else. And then obviously the second thing I, I always talk about as well is liking. So attraction and liking is very different, right? You could be attracted to someone, but not like their character or some of the personality traits that that person wow. has. So that's very different, Jordan, right? So attraction and liking is very different because liking is all about the person, their attributes, their characteristics, their personality, right? So I could be attracted to Jennifer Lopez, right? But may not like some of the her personal <laughs> characteristics of her personality, right? So mm-hmm. it's very, very different. And then you look at... Um, you know, after attraction, liking, then it's nurturing. Any relationship that is not a nurturing relationship will struggle. So nurturing is all about when things are bad or difficult for anyone in the relationship, um, individually or in, you know, as a couple, you know, how do they manage those difficult times? So knowing that when I am, you know, having a really bad, you know, season in my life or moment in my life, that my wife is going to be there to support me and to 
to encourage me and to help me kind of heal from whatever negative experiences that I have, that I may be going through or if I have experienced. So nurturing is very, very, very important. So again, I, I, I like to look at it from those three components, attraction, liking, and nurturing. A lot of times there's like this argument of, you know, know your, you know, know yourself, know your worth. Like, you know, you don't, I, don't put up with BS. If like, if you're not being treated right, like if you don't think this is right, then, and, and you're getting the, you've been getting those warning signs, then leave. Then there's the other side of it. Like, oh, we got to fight for it as much as we can. But then sometimes people end up staying in a relationship far too long. And you can disagree with me. I don't even know. Um, I don't even know what you're thinking right now. But when do you, would you say is the right time to call it quits, the right time to walk away? When do you know? Well, you'll know when, when, you know, when you're in that aspect of nurturing that I talked about, that there are multiple examples or opportunities in the relationship where you saw that that person wasn't very supportive or wasn't uh, uh, nurturing or that um, they were maybe un- they have unhealthy patterns themselves, right? So they have issues themselves that are issues around either controlling, issues of aggression, issues of disrespect, I- issues of not just being nice to you, right? So if, you know, uh, there, there, that's when you can, you know, check into or seek counseling. I believe that, you know, individuals can really um, change if they are really committed to the relationship and to the process of looking into why maybe they're not as nurturing, why they might be struggling with aggression or with anger or with issues, you know, that, that can interfere with having a healthy relationship. So that's the optimal time to go to counseling um, and and really see if there is um, really a, a strong commitment uh, on, on that person's um, themselves to really look at, okay, I'm willing to work on these areas in my life so that I can maintain this relationship. But if mm-hmm. not, then that's probably the time to move fo- move on. <laughs> Yes, yes. Got it, Dr. Castiano. So one of the last things I want to talk about today is the epigenetic, the epigenetics of trauma and stress across the lifespan. And from my very basic understanding of epigenetics, epigenetics are gene- genes on top. Doesn't epi mean like on top? I don't even, I don't know, but like pretty much created, right, through your environment or happenings or whatever what are epigenetics yeah so epigenetics are again any kind of alteration to our gene expression right oh so there you know we have dna we have chromosome structures right so depending on the health of those genes um, they're going to express themselves in different ways. So, or there's going to be different types of molecular or gene activities um, that are really critical to brain development and even physiological functioning. So, the ep- you know when we look at epigenetics of trauma, for for instance, right? So, in epigenetics of trauma, we're looking at how a traumatic experiences 
that individuals may have in life really begin to alter not just the neurotransmission process in the brain, but also the physiological response to trauma, right? So there's a there's countless um, research out there in regards to epigenetics, and even books that I that I say if you are interested in epigenetics um, or in the field of trauma and stress, some of the really important books that you need to have in your in your bookcase are you know the body keeps the score by Bezel van der Kolk, um, um, the deepest well by Dr. Nadine Burke. Um, the boy who's raised as a dog by, you know, one of the people that I highly respect and I, and I consider a mentor and really change, you know, the way that I, that, that I work in Dr. Bruce Perry. Right. So those kind of, um, uh, books are really, really, um, the, you know, really informative on how, you know, epigenetics really works and how trauma really affects individuals. Mm-hmm. How does it? alter our genes over lifetime even you know so there's this kind of intergenerational pattern of gene expression and though you know one way that i that i'd like to explain it um is you know there's a lot of research being done on or that has been done um on individuals or that generation that experienced the holocaust right which was that was probably you know the worst thing in, in our human experience that if you, you know, if you have family members that experience the Holocaust, that the trauma and, and just the sheer fear and death. And it is just, it was just the most negative things that in any individual can experience. So looking at that, the, that generation or individuals that experience the Holocaust, Research and science is showing that even three generations later, those family members have epigenetic impacts due to the the trauma of their family members. And and you can say, but man, that was like three generations ago. But the way that gene or the epigenetics of trauma works is, you know, your shoelaces, um, you know, the little plastic ends that they put on your shoelaces. So... That is in, in, in our chromosome structure, that's called the telomere. So epigenetics talks about how severe traumatic experiences begin to um, decrease our telomeres, which are the protective end caps of, of our chromosome structure. So over time, you're seeing that the intergenerational traumatic experience has impacts on our genes so far that our telomere structures in our chromosome are affected even three generations later on. So Dude, the, that's the same. Yeah. So what that means is that physiologically, individuals are like, man, I don't know why I'm struggling with certain medical conditions. Um, and when you start to look back, the impacts of epigenetics of trauma is one of those reasons why they might be struggling with physiological conditions such as inflammation of the body or, or even cancer, right? So it's really, in, it's, it's groundbreaking work and, and we're just in the process of, you know, you know, publishing a lot of this information so that um, the public can be aware of the impacts of epigenetics in trauma. So, 
uh, as we begin to wrap up here, is there anything else that you wanted to share on relationships, epigenetics, and neurobiology of attachment that we've not already said? Well, I, I think that, again, individuals should uh, focus on their individual health, making sure that they have a healthy diet, exercise, that they are not um, you know, dealing with toxic stress, which again, toxic stress releases a hormone called cortisol that is detrimental to our physiological and biological uh, functioning. So yes, we all have life uh, stress in life, right? Uh, Jordan, you have stress, I have stress. You know, one of the things that I say uh, to individuals that come into counseling and they say, I want to live a stress-free life. I was like, well, I don't know if I can help you with that. No. <laughs> right? Because we all are going to experience stress. But it's the level of toxic stress that I'm concerned about, right? It's that prolonged um, stress-induced kind of lifestyle that's really, really concerning. So you have to um, learn how to manage toxic stress so that you can have healthy physiological and biological functioning. Um, and then again, build healthy relationships with people and don't isolate. Um, and if you are that type of person that tends to isolate um, or have anxieties, right? Because of, you know, it's really difficult for you to build um, relationships. And I'm not saying you have to have, you know, 3000 friends, right? You know, I, I always say even having one to two really good friends is healthy for you um, long term. But isolation is really toxic and is really detrimental to our overall um, human experience. Yeah. Now that I think about it, I, I mean, I only had I had one friend in high school, but that one friend saved me probably. Uh, yes. that's, yeah, that's all you need. One to two yeah, friends. <laughs> quite interesting. I want to highlight something you said at the beginning of that. And it said it starts with the individual. It starts with your self-care first. Uh, self-love and self-care is not self-ish. No. no, Not at all. Not at all. I always tell because people struggle with, well, if I'm taking care of me and I'm always doing things for me, um, you know, I'm, people are going to call me selfish. And I'm like, no. You know, it's almost like if your cup is not full, you can't give anything to anyone else. You can't. If there's nothing in your cup, you can't pour into other cups. No. That's right. That's right. So making sure that you're taking care of you. And even in the substance abuse treatment world, right, a lot of individuals in that are struggling with substance abuse, I tell them when they're in a residential treatment program, I said, this is now the time to really focus on you and why you got you engaged in you know in in maladaptive ways of coping with whatever trauma you know child neglect or abusive relationships or whatever you use um, substances to mask difficulties in life. Now this is the time to you to really focus on you, and that's not being selfish. Nope, not at all, Doctor Cassiano. Where can people learn more about all these topics from your work? Where can they go? Yeah, they can definitely go to my website. Um, it's www.cassianoclinicalservices.org. There they can find information on how to contact me um, if they're interested in me coming out and sharing uh, with either your students, uh, with your organization, with your clinic. 
um, or even just um, I've I've even gone to churches to really talk about you know the impacts of you know taking care of your mental health and and having positive connections and 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 all of that. So whatever forum um, you're interested in me coming out to speak to you, um, I'm um, again I would be honored to do that. Awesome, Dr. Cassiano. I have to acknowledge you for teaching people about relationships and for counseling these people that are having trouble in relationships, but teaching people, most importantly, educating the world about healthy relationships, because it is one of the most important, if not the most important thing to learn about in the world that we're just not learning in school for the most part. So I thank you and acknowledge you for that, Dr. Cassiano. Yes, yes. I think if people can just really have positive relationships with others, you know, a lot of these social ills that we see, we wouldn't experience as frequently as we're experiencing them. Well, Dr. Cassiano, my final question is, if you could teach a course, oh my gosh, I just realized you do teach at a university. (laughs) (laughs) My, My final question is always, if you could teach a course at a university, a course of your creation or otherwise, what would it be? And I usually... You know, usually when a professor or a teacher is on, I'll be like, okay, yeah, and I'll modify the question. <laughs> so we will uh, modify the question a little bit. We're going to go back to the old final question, like back, you know, 30, 40 episodes ago that it used to be. What does life beautifully designed look like to you? Because I always say that life is best lived by design. Yes, life that's most beautifully designed is, you know, when you are living in an environment where you're supported, where you're encouraged, where, where you're loved, and where individuals around you are able to support you in the way that you believe you should live your life. Um, and where there is positive engagement, positive relationships, um, that is, you know, again, the, the best way that you can, you know, design life. And, you know, I have a son and I've committed myself to uh, allowing myself to give him those opportunities so that he can design a life that he can be proud of and that he can, um, you know, have joy in living. Dr. Cassiano, you're the man. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. There you have it, my friends. This has been another episode of the Growth Mindset University podcast. Now, if you enjoyed this one today, I would really appreciate it if you could leave us a quick five-star rating in iTunes. All you have to do is grab your iPhone or iPad, open up the Apple Podcast app, hit the search tab, search the show Growth Mindset University, or just search my name, Jordan Paris, tap the show, scroll all the way to the bottom, and then just hit that fifth star. And that helps us tremendously in ways that you could never even imagine. It means the absolute world to me when people do this. I would be eternally grateful if you do that. We're pushing 100 ratings right now, and it's really making a difference for this show. And of course, if you've not already subscribed to the show, just make sure you do that wherever you're listening to so that you don't miss that next episode. I know you're not going to want to miss it. And you only heard this episode today because I thought it was valuable enough to post here. So if you want to share that value with your friends, your family, 
go ahead and do that. Share this episode with them. Take a screenshot, send it to them. Take a screenshot, put it on your Instagram story and tag me at J underscore Paris underscore so that I know you're listening and I can get back to you and put a face to the name. Now, if you're ready to really take your life to the next level, my book is on Amazon. It is also called Growth Mindset University. It's all about how to learn anything, how to take control of your life, and how to fulfill your vision of success. And you're not just supporting me and this channel by getting this book, but you're also getting this awesome book that's going to lay out the rules and principles to design your life full of joy and fulfillment. All right, I love you all so very much. And until next time, my friends, make every day count, live to learn, and grow to give.